Welcome to STEM Interviews, a science communication interview series powered by stemcognito.org, a not-for-profit platform showcasing the best in STEM research for free. STEM Interviews is hosted by ex-researcher turned professional science communicator Dr. Sarah Wettstadt. Each episode, Sarah chats to a scientist, technologist, engineer or mathematician about their research and why it's important for both scientists and non-scientists. She also asks about their science communication tactics, hobbies, career journeys and pretty much everything in between. Hello, welcome to a new episode of our STEM interviews. Today we have with us Daisy Shearer from the University of Surrey, where she's currently um, undertaking her PhD project. And we're going to talk about physics and quantum technology today with her. Um, hi, Daisy. Good to meet you. Good to have you with us today. Hi. Um, first, first start, would you mind summarizing your research project for us, please? Sure. So I'm a PhD candidate in condensed physics at the University of Surrey. So my project is all about looking at a specific semiconductor called indium antimonide. And the thing about this semiconductor is it has what's called a very large spin orbit interaction. So that's basically the interaction between the electron spin, which is the intrinsic angular momentum of an electron, and the orbital angular momentum of an electron going around the nucleus. Um, and this allows us to really um, look into using spin and like manipulating and controlling it um, for future technologies. So for example, quantum computing is kind of the big one, um, but also areas like quantum metrology, which is all about making really hyper precise sort of measurement systems and sensors. Mm -hmm. So an another aspect of my work is um, fabrication techniques. So I'm looking at what's called a direct right fabrication technique. Um, which basically means that you can put your sample in and all in situ, you can um, create different geometries and things. So I use a focused ion beam to do this, which basically shoots a beam of ions at the surface and it can either kind of dig, dig holes or it can deposit material. Um, and in that way you can um, sort of either sort of cut out different shapes and you can also put new materials on top and that's how we can make these nanoscale devices. Um, so I'm looking at specifically with indiumantimonide how to develop these techniques. And the lovely thing about the direct writing is that you can really quickly prototype new devices, whereas usually these would take months to develop a new mask and go through sort of complicated fabrication techniques with the fear, but we can just in a day fabricate a new, a new design and, and then test it. So it's really, really good for our research and development. Um, but not so much for commercialization, but in sort of okay. the like experimental side, sort of research side of things, um, okay. it can like push us forwards a bit. So, so it's a bit yeah. more basic, basic research focused as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there was a lot of, <laughs> a lot of explanations. Maybe we can just start um, like from the basics. Um, from what I remember from my physics classes, spins. Um, there are these things that kind of exist, but also they don't exist. Can you maybe explain exactly what a spin is, especially in physics? Because I have a chemical background and I think there's a bit of a difference with that. Oh, okay. Please enlighten me. So yeah, spin is a weird property. Um, we kind of, physicists have kind of sort of deduced that it exists from experiments, things like the Stern-Gerlach experiment. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially we think of it as the intrinsic angular momentum of, a, of an electron because 
you can kind of have the analogy of in classical physics, if you had a rotating charged ball, mm-hmm. um, it gives you an angular momentum and it's that angular momentum that we measure in, in our experiments. So we call it spin, yeah. even though electrons, of course, aren't actually little charged balls that are rotating around and rotating around. They're actually, well, we can think of them as probabilities and, and, and wave functions. Um, but yeah, essentially that's kind of, a good analogy for spin and I still think about it in those terms um because it's easy yeah. um to conceptualize okay so the spin is the 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 property of the atom or of the electron because one atom is surrounded by many electrons if I remember correctly right yeah and each one has a has its own momentum has its own spin right and what does it yes. have to do with waves <laughs> so yeah it, it's a it, it's a property of, of particles um in general so mm-hmm. Each electron will have um, a, a spin number, plus a half or minus a half. Um, and yeah, I guess the whole, because that's how the maths works. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, in the case of electrons, it's plus or minus a half, but other other particles have different spin numbers. Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of waves, um, in quantum mechanics, we often think of electrons as probability waves rather than like uh, a physical particle. So What's a links probability in with wave. wave? A wave it, that is probable, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, so you can think of it as like, if you had a graph like this, mm-hmm. um, like a bell curve, say, yeah. um, of probabilities, um, we can describe electrons using this probability sort of graph that, you know, they're most likely to be at the peak and least yeah. likely to be out at the edges, but they can be in okay. any of those places okay. um and that's kind of it's really hard to get your head around <laughs> and that's why quantum mechanics is kind of like pretty foreign to a lot of people mm. um but this is why we can get quantum tunneling because say you have your your probability peak um and yes. it sort of runs off and you have like a wall yeah. quantum tunneling is there is a chance that it's going to be yeah. past the wall and then okay. if you have enough electrons, then that will happen. Okay, so that means, okay, wait. You have this probability curve, which means your mm-hmm. electron can be somewhere within this area of the curve, right? And yes. chances are higher that are in the uh, in the taller and the yeah, bigger areas than in the outside. Yes. Okay. And each electron has to be within that, or yeah, chances are high, probability is high that it's within this curve area Mm -hmm. okay so tunneling now means that there are chances that these electrons can also be outside um it just means in terms of like if you have an energy barrier that there's a chance that it can it can suddenly appear on the other side of the barrier um yeah it's very difficult to to kind of conceptualize as i say um but what you find is that um this probability wave, um, we call it the wave function. Yeah. Until we actually measure something, interact with the system, we can treat it as if the electrons are in all of those probabilities at once, which is how we get some weird and wonderful quantum effects like quantum entanglement and quantum superpositions. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what has this beautiful bell curve now to do with spins and everything else you said, basically? <laughs> Well, essentially, um, when we're thinking of an electron and electron spin, um, we can think of it in that classical way. But the reality is 
that it's not a physical ball of charge. It's yeah. a, it, we can actually describe it using this probability wave. Um, and yeah, the the spin is just one property of the electron. Um, okay. But essentially, the reason why I brought the, the probability wave into it is that um, thinking of electrons in a classical way can be useful, but in terms of like applying it um, in a quantum technology kind of application, um, you can't really think of it them in that classical yeah. sense. You have to delve over into this quantum quantum world. <laughs> okay. And how do you do that? How do you now use your spins for actual quantum technology? So um, what I'm working on at the moment yeah. is um, a, looking at a kind of device called a spin polarizer. A spin polarizer. So okay. Yeah. I spoke a little bit about how you can have a plus a half or minus a half yes. spin state. Yes. Um, we call this spin up and down often with an yeah. electron. Yeah. So a spin polarizer is essentially a theoretical device that when you pass a current of electrons through it, you can deflect one spin type in one direction and the other spin type in another direction. Okay. So it's a bit like you have like positive and negative charge and then you either get repulsion or adhesion. Yeah, and because it's all related to the angular momentum and the associated magnetic moment, that's we use a lot of magnets um, in, in my research. So yeah, essentially I'm using these sort of rapid prototyping techniques to try and make a spin polarizer. Um, people have made them, but not with what we call 100% fidelity, which means that 100% of the spin ups are going this way and the other way, yeah. obviously. Okay we want to try and like maximize it as best possible and this can be used for the, sort of the main uh, application would be initializing an electron spin qubit so if you know that the, this current is all spin up electrons we know our initial state yeah and that's really key part of um quantum bits or qubits in quantum computing because uh -huh. if you don't know your initial state you yeah. can't possibly yeah. do any computation and okay. then read out. You have to know that that's like the first step okay. in a quantum computation. I see. So yeah, okay. You're trying to have like one population of electrons that all have the same properties and then go from there. Basically. Yeah, and, do then, experiments and then you do stuff. See, yeah, exactly. See how they work. I got it. I got it. Okay. And okay, what? Okay, what did we just say? <laughs> We're talking of electrons, but electrons, are you only working with electrons or are all these electrons always part of an atom or an ion? That's so, what yeah. I'm a bit confused about now because we know that <laughs> atoms are made of electrons and protons. Mm -hmm. So yeah, where, yeah, what exactly are you now separating? So I work with semiconductors and essentially we can think of this as in, we can kind of flip between an insulator and a metal. So, you know, in a metal, you kind of, we call it a sea of electrons. So you have delocalized electrons that are bouncing around within your yeah. material. The same yeah. thing happens in a semiconductor. Which is why um, metals are shiny because they can reflect the light. That's what I remember from yeah, physics. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So within my semiconductor materials, electrons can move around freely um, under certain conditions. Yeah. So that's, those are the electrons. And, and if we, we can make them flow like a current, like in a metal. So that's what yeah. we'd be looking at. They're, they're delocalized from their nuclei 
within okay. the material and we sort of look at them as rather than individuals we look at them as a population a flow yeah yeah okay okay that's super cool I think I think I'm getting it now yes yeah yeah no <laughs> yes. It, it takes ask away it takes a lot to like delve yeah, down into yeah it. yeah um okay are we using this kind of technology somewhere in our daily devices or like the concept of this uh, the, the basic concept of this are we using yeah um I mean Spintronic specifically not yet there have been sort of prototype devices that have been made but it all builds off of electronics and semiconductors are what make up most of our electronics so the transistor um is a component that's made of semiconductors and, and spintronics basically is like we're taking electronics and we're adding spin on top yes. so it's, it all builds off of, of this background we have within electronics and it stands for spin transport electronics so yeah. okay okay spin transport electronics okay okay and what exactly is a semiconductor now so semiconductors are a type of material that are between a conductor and an insulator so if you think about an insulator um we talk about the the valence band and the conduction band so the conduction band is is the energies where electrons can flow around freely yeah and the valence band is where they're like trapped in to okay. your atoms so yes. in an insulator there's a huge what we call a band gap so it would take electrons a lot of energy for them to leap from your bound yeah. valence band up into your conduction band where they can flow around and you, you can measure a charge. Okay. So that's an insulator. A conductor is basically no band gap. Um, okay. It takes barely any energy and electrons are just inherently in that conduction band. Okay. Semiconductors are in between, so they have an intermediate band gap. And that means that it, it can take very little energy for us to um, get an electron from that valence band into the conduction band. So for example, adding energy in we can shoot a photon at it shoot a laser at yeah. it and we can excite an electron up into that conducting um, yeah. energy and then it can flow around so that's basically what semiconductors are okay. um, and these the property of being able to kind of control how many electrons we can put up into that conducting state mm -hmm. um, helps us um, sort of make devices like the transistor okay and do you have some um examples from our daily lives with a, what's an insulator what's a semiconductor and what's a conductor just for people to maybe grasp yeah. it a bit what like what yeah, you mean with exciting and energy and what what is the energy <laughs> where does that energy actually come from so an insulator i mean something like wood would be a, an electrical insulator so wood. it's mm -hmm. very hard to pass a current through it because um that the electrons are kind of bound um, and yeah, it, it just, it doesn't really have any electrical, um, what we call conductivity. Okay. And a conductor example would be copper, you know, or any sort of um, metal that we use metal. in yeah. electronics. Okay. Um, but uh, then, so yeah. I mean, but then wood is basically a chemical mixture of lots of different atoms and you know chemicals and stuff while copper is just one iron or like one atom one chemical you know how do you so, mean because you said wood as an example for an insulator no yeah okay but in wood you have like a different atoms like you have carbon you have hydrogen you have sulfur I guess that's and true. whatever so that's why i mean yeah can, can you actually compare these things just because there's different chemical backgrounds or then also 
different physical backgrounds because you know in the chemicals the all the atoms are bound to each other which does that make make the electrons stuck with each other so they can't get excited to the higher state or is um, that a property of an insulator or is it just one example that's just one example okay. like essentially an insulator is um anything where electrons can't flow easily yeah um okay I am going blank on other examples <laughs> <laughs> right now, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean, the classic conductor are metals and, okay. and also yeah. wires and stuff. Okay, I got you, I got you. Okay, so everything where we have electrons somehow free that it can get excited so they can flow and swim out to others. Yeah, and that you can pass a charge through it um, with ease. Yes, okay, gotcha, nice. That's really exciting. So can you say, can you just maybe, I'm really curious, like how do you do experiments for your PhD ah. now? Is that truly theoretical, but that you, then you also mentioned uh, magnets and yeah, what, how is basically a normal day going for you in the lab or at the computer? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm primarily an experimental physicist. Nice. Um, so I'm mostly in the lab. Um, I also dabble in the materials sort of engineering side of things these days. So yeah, there's that. Um, sometimes I'm doing making those different geometries and stuff of new devices, but sort of the main bulk of my work is working with um, magnets and with sort of uh, measuring the properties of my devices. So I work with a superconducting magnet. So mm -hmm. it's a big dark green cylinder. How huge. big? How big are we talking? A meter, probably, two meter, three meters? Probably about a meter and a half of diameter. Whoa, that's um, she's pretty big. Um and it's a she, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and um it's all cryogenically cooled, so um use liquid helium. Um, to cool down the yeah. the magnet, so it's made of superconductor. Yeah, another term, um, which is a material that's like when you cool it down far enough beyond what's called its critical temperature, it goes into a superconducting phase, which means that um, a flow of electrons can flow through without any electrical resistance at all. So okay. um, it means you can get a really really large. Um, flow of current going through um, and because we can use a coil do you remember the, from physics a coil um, of, of a wire um, yeah. can create a magnetic field magnetic around field, it yeah yeah so basically for our magnets she can go up to seven teslas which is more than sort of an mri machine <laughs> but okay. i have worked with a magnet that goes up to 15 teslas and there are okay. even 45 15 tesla magnets which is an incredible amount of magnetic field okay. isn't that um, a bit dangerous like are you allowed yeah. to wear piercings or whatever it's it's yeah you're not allowed <laughs> to go in within a certain distance if you have like a pacemaker and stuff yeah but it's all okay. risk assessed so but yeah okay. there are you know risks associated with it so essentially this magnet um I'll put my devices inside. Why are the device up? now? Sorry, a device so is what? Your a, a semiconductor. <laughs> so like a semi a semiconductor um, yeah. that I've made into a spin attempted to make a spin polarizer. Um, okay. They are these 
so the actual device would be nanoscale but the the chip that it goes on mm. is probably about five millimeters okay um and then on the chip we wire it up with really teeny tiny golden wires so that we can then measure electrical current across it and we can also put an electrical current through it um so once we put it inside the magnet mm -hmm. um we can then from the outside we have a breakout box that was one of the things i made early on in my phd oh, nice. you can you can wire it up um in different ways and pass it pass currents through and, and measure the because we mostly measure electrical properties to probe them so then we'll cool it down mm -hmm. um to about four kelvin usually is where i sit so really 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 cold um and then apply an electrical field and what we find is that we can then probe um the electrical properties and, and that can reveal things about the spin so mm -hmm. um the spin orbit coupling is something that we we look at and uh, something called spin splitting so essentially when you apply a field yeah there's so much jargon i know yeah um, <laughs> it's fine <laughs> it, you get these peaks and mm -hmm. at, at a certain magnetic field the peaks will start to split and you can measure the amount of sort of double peaks that you get and that that can tell you about the spin um and that what the electrons are doing energy wise within my semiconductor okay so what it's are very these waves these waves are so no so yeah this these would be um like basically conductivity so the amount of electrons flowing through okay um and they split and because at some point they go like i don't know the maximum they reach a maximum and then something happens and they go down or so the spins basically <laughs> oh it's really difficult to go into right. it because you're doing great so much um so how do I explain this? So it's something called the quantum Hall effect. Okay. Um, which is basically a something that we observe in semiconductors like the ones that I work with. And there we find that as we increase the external magnetic field, that that the resistance like has these plateaus. Mm -hmm. And then we in one direction. So uh, essentially, the geometry that we use is called a hall bar. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like a rectangle with two, four legs on it. Yeah. So if you apply a current across it, and then you can measure the voltage across across ways and yeah. long ways. Yeah. And then this gives us these um, two, basically two different relationships that we find. One of them is this plateauing, mm -hmm. and this, the other one is um, the, the, these oscillations that we see, which are those peaks that I was talking mm -hmm. about that get that get split. Um, and the really interesting thing about the, the quantum Hall effect is that these plateaus and the corresponding peaks, because the peaks happen um, in line with these plateaus, um, they're consistent so they mm -hmm. can actually give us a um 
like a standard for measuring conductivity. Okay. I've gone off the deep end a bit here. It's um, <laughs> all right. But, okay. um, yeah. So that is basically your, your baseline for everything else. Yeah, for yeah, all the, yeah. Okay, okay. I get it. I think I do, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay, so maybe we should switch topic a bit because we know mm -hmm. that doing a PhD or being in academia for you is a bit more difficult, a bit more challenging than maybe for others. Can you maybe explain to us why that is and yeah, what exactly are the challenges you're facing in academia? Yeah, sure. So I am autistic. Um, I was diagnosed when I was 21, so it was not too long ago because I'm 25 now. Okay. Um, and I find being autistic quite disabling um, and identify as disabled. Um, so that I have some like additional challenges associated with that, especially with the sensory environment and communication differences. Mm -hmm. um, and also sort of in my home life, independent living mm. and self-care um, they can be quite challenging and often I have to focus on that and then having the energy for my research everything else yeah okay and everything else and juggling okay so yeah okay and um, how is your supervisor supporting you with this um he's really great um I didn't disclose up front but a few months in I did disclose to him and sort of said uh hey by the way I have this diagnosis and yeah. it kind of impacts the way that I interact um <clears throat> and he's been really really supportive in, in trying to understand that my mind's slightly differently wired mm -hmm. and also sort of coming to compromises and, and supporting me and my reasonable adjustments so I have access to a little private um room that I can go to if I starting to feel a sensory overwhelm because yeah. we are based mostly in an open office okay which is not a good environment for me I've had several shutdowns out out in there um so yeah I had this adjustment where there's this room I can go to and I can switch off all the lights and I can just self-regulate mm. again so that I can okay. go back out to work That's, okay um and that then it's really good to hear that this exists yeah. I've, I've honestly never heard of this and I'm, I'm really happy and glad that you have this opportunity that's amazing yes yeah I'm very thankful that I have that because otherwise I would not be yeah. as functional at all okay um so yeah and we also um sort of have some communication compromises so from time to time it's very unpredictable I will go nonverbal, mm -hmm. and in those cases we will do our one-to-one -one meetings using instant messaging Mm -hmm. So things like that. And, and my, yeah, my supervisor in my university have been really, really supportive of me, which is great. That's great. But of course, there are always challenges like uh, you're never going to get rid of some of the sort of broader systemic issues. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, managing my needs can sometimes be a bit more difficult. But on the whole, like, yeah, uh, had a lot of really great support. That's good. That's, that's really good to hear. Okay, especially since yeah, academia and doing a PhD is, I think, more challenging than some other people's journey throughout life. So yeah, I'm really glad to hear that. Um, and you're also advocating for um, autistics in STEM, if I remember correctly. What are your science communication projects involved in that regard? 
in terms of um, autism and stuff, I have a project called Neurodivergent in STEM. So mm -hmm. that's all about uh, connecting neurodivergent people. So neurodiversity um, and kind of involves an umbrella of different conditions, autism being one of them, um, but also like ADHD, Tourette's, dyslexia, dyspraxia, things like that. Um, people who have neurodevelopmental conditions. Um, so I run this uh, project that's all about sharing the stories of different neurodivergent people's paths in STEM, um, trying to provide role models for young people who are neurodivergent and might feel that they can't see themselves in different STEM roles. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we it's always so inspiring reading all of the like biographies that people submit. Um, it's community driven, so it's all it's depends nice. on um, people coming in cause because you know there's never any pressure to disclose because it can be you know really challenging and, mm. and sometimes kind of dangerous to openly disclose. But for those who are happy with that, then then we share them and and we also have um, a Facebook group and a LinkedIn group for people to join if they identify as neurodivergent in STEM and sort of make in internal connections there and, and um, pit support and things like that. Nice, that's amazing, yes. Okay, and what do you feel most grateful for when people come to you and what, what, like, what makes you the happiest when they join your community or like share their experiences or want to help? What's, yeah, what makes you the happiest in that moment? probably people sharing experiences and and like the solidarity that comes with that and seeing people like helping each other um and sort of saying oh I've had a similar experience mm. like for me I've a few people have said oh I've had a similar experience with this and that and it just makes you feel so much less alone um when yeah. there's someone else going through it so yeah, yeah that's great that was really interesting that's that's really amazing thank you um At the end of our STEM interviews, you might have seen that we always have a couple of random questions. So the first one is, what was your favorite subject at school? My favorite subject at school kind of, it fluctuated between chemistry and physics. Nice. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, by the time I was 15, it was quite securely physics, um, mm -hmm. but yeah. I also liked art as well. That was kind of probably my third subject. Okay, um, nice. So yeah, bit of a creative side as well. Okay, that's good. Are you using that for anything? Like some science art? Are you drawing I, some really uh, cool electron waves or something? I would love to. Like, um, Once I've finished my PhD and have more time, I really want to do some of that. But I think the creativity, like being creative is a really key skill as a researcher. And I think yes. that that's, that's something yeah. that like having that kind of creative side is really important and something I use every day. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I feel exactly the same. Yeah. Okay, so in one sentences, that sentence, what are you truly passionate about? <laughs> Helping people discover a passion for science. Nice. I think. Nice. Yeah. That's amazing. And but with you being here, you're already doing a good job to achieve that. That's amazing. Thanks. <laughs> okay. What do you do in your free time? I like to bake. Um, and I'm also a gardener, so nice. uh, I do a lot of gardening. I actually did an outreach project um, called the Quantum Garden, so that kind of brought that together with science communication. So yeah, but baking and gardening are my main hobbies. Okay, what is a quantum garden? 
it sounds super fun so it's so it was weird. A, <laughs> it was a little project that we ran where um with my university um I kind of designed this little mini garden based off of a paper that some of my colleagues have published a few years back um it sort of tried to explore some quantum concepts like superposition and entanglement like I was trying to find plants that were like two two of the same type and then one in between that was meant to be like superposition okay. and things. Um, <laughs> that's cool and it was also shaped like a wave function um with these sort of shells and stuff and it was exploring different aspects of um, applications of quantum computing so we had these little signs um, around that sort of explored um, potential applications and it was in the local community um, we put it out near where a lot of our students live out there um, and it entered in the local gardening competition and we won a gold medal and things so um, it was basically just a, a fun little project to try and get the local community to engage with some of the research we're doing at the university because a lot of them don't know that we have the Advanced Technology Institute which is where I'm based and and we're doing quite a lot of exciting research there so yeah it was a really really fun time. Um, it sounds and, really cool yeah. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> okay um, the next question is what is your favorite movie including quantum technology or does it not Ooh. exist yet? <laughs> yeah I'm not sure I've seen any movies. Yeah. The thing about science in films is that often yeah. it's wrong and it's really annoying. Yeah. So I'm not or sure. It's so have superficial that it's like, man, I wish there was a tiny bit more explanation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure I have an answer to that one, to be honest. Okay. okay. That's fine. We can, we can add that later. <laughs> yeah. Have okay. a think. Okay. And then I asked one is what would you do if you were donated $10 million to your project? Um, I'd like to set up a scholarship fund for disabled students to pursue STEM um, degrees and uh, PhDs. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah, I would love to give that money to you. Yes, sounds good. <laughs> okay. Daisy, thank you so much for your time and for answering all these questions. It has been absolutely amazing. I learned a lot about physics today. And yeah, a lot of my memory from physics and physical chemistry classes came back today. That was amazing. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. And yeah, have a nice rest of the day, I guess. You too. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> and that's it for this week's episode of STEM to Views. Tune in again to hear more research stories from the scientists themselves. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter at STEMcognito and on Instagram, also at STEMcognito, where you can keep up to date with our latest guests, video uploads and science communication tips, and also watch the video version of this interview. See you over there.